Hello and welcome to the African American Hour. I'm Byron Buckner, bringing you readings from the following publications. The Wall Street Journal, Reuters.com, The New York Times, and The Associated Press. We're going to start today's African American Hour with part two of a reading of the article, History of My Old Kentucky Home Examines How Black Performers Had to Act Out Caricatures of Plantation Life. This article is from the website anscape.com. It was written by Emily Bingham and was originally published May 3rd, 2022. This reading is a book review. The title of the book is My Old Kentucky Home, The Astonishing Life and Reckoning of an Iconic American Song. In my last program, Part one of the article largely dealt with the early life of performer Tom Fletcher and manager Billy McLean. As I start the reading today, McLean, who is African-American, is developing a plan for a traveling minstrel show in the late 1800s. In 1892, McLean pitched an idea for a traveling show to a Louisville political boss who operated a string of cheap burlesque and vaudeville venues across the Ohio Valley. Why pay other shows to fill his theaters when, with Billy's help, John Whalen could produce the entertainment and pay himself? Lavish sets would provide a backdrop for life in antebellum times, a picturesque spectacle mixing plantation minstrel fare with the latest songs and dances. Boss Whalen ran Louisville's Democratic Party out of his Buckingham Theater, where scantily clad women amused working-class men. The Whalen machine unashamedly suppressed black Republican votes, but McLean would have to overlook politics to access Whalen's capital. Whalen knew the fantasy of old plantation life is always enjoyable to white audiences, and nostalgia made my old Kentucky home a reliable favorite. The Buckingham Theater entered a realistic slave cabin covered in picturesque vines in the Louisville Commercial Club's 1888 Parade of Industry and Commerce. The float contained a living, smiling black man waving from the window and met with cheers. With the South before the war, Whalen gave McLean a unique opportunity. Black people had almost no access to leadership roles in show business. Billy hired almost 100 black performers. The call went out from the Buckingham Theater. Clever colored talent wanted quick. Ladies and gents of experience, refinement, and culture in cakewalking, shouting, singing, plantation melodies, quadrilles, wing, reel, and buck dancing were invited to apply. Almost all sports of the ancient and modern Africans, colored orchestra, etc. Telegraph at once. The ad did not mention that to cater to White's fascination with slavery days, these experienced dancers and singers would be required to pick real cotton in the air sats field that served as the show's visual anchor. Indeed, the scripted content of the South before the war was as racially demeaning as any minstrel show, indicating how painfully limited McLean's creative control truly was. One scene that passed for slapstick called for a steamboat named the Robert E. Lee to dock at a levee where resting stevedores were pricked in the feet with needles or prodded with hot irons. Can you smell him cooking, one character asked? Such was the context for the Piccaninny Chorus performance of My Old Kentucky Home in Under a Southern Sky, a skit within the 1892 show. Many years after escaping bondage in Kentucky, 
Uncle F returns to his wife and children, frozen in place on the plantation where he left them before the Civil War. F collapses after the son of his enslaver attacks him for abandoning old master on his deathbed. The black children sing him out of this world and into the next with my old Kentucky home. The star roles, F and his wife, Chloe, went to a pair of white blackface veterans. But the national entertainment paper, the New York Clipper, confirmed that genuine colored men and women filled all other parts and excelled in the musical and dance numbers. The South before the war toured as far south as New Orleans and as far west as Chicago, giving steady work to the McLeans in the two Piccaninny bands, grand colored chorus of 50 voices, 40 buck dancers, four quartets, 30 jubilee shouters that rounded out the company. In Washington, D.C., the South before the war was sold out, and one newspaper noted the audience was equally divided between whites and blacks. The white press praised the show for its superior antics of niggerdom. Objectionable as the plot points and white commentaries were, black theatergoers came to witness the artistry on stage, expressions of resistance or at least survival in a society where black opportunities were so frequently crushed. McLean's success was a triumph. As lynching spread unchecked, he treated the truth with dignity and embodied the possibility of promotion in the business. Though he answered to white men, Billy had proved he could make a hit and Boss Whalen awarded him a medal for successful stage management. McLean's next project aimed for a more uplifting effect. In 1895, McLean persuaded Nate Salisbury, producer of Buffalo Bill's Wild West show, to let him use its Brooklyn location and repurpose its log cabins as slave dwellings for a new extravaganza. Billed as the music director, McLean probably created, wrote, and managed Black America, by far the largest all-black show to date, with a cast of 500. That summer, it ran twice a day in Ambrose Park, capacity 7,000. It went on tour with a leaner troupe occupying large outdoor and indoor venues in the Northeast and closed at Madison Square Garden. Summer was the slow season for regular minstrel and vaudeville shows, so McLean had his pick of black talent. He selected his wife Cordelia as the featured soloist for My Old Kentucky Home. In the 1890s, respected social scientists theorized that black Americans, having failed to adapt to freedom, were likely to die out. The black disappearance hypothesis put the onus on the race for allegedly innate pathologies. W.E.B. Du Bois and a generation of black leaders ran themselves racket refuting white supremacist ideologies based on biased data. Black America, an Epcot-like edutainment plugged as an exhibition of Negro life and character, was McLean's effort to assert that black America and black Americans were not going away. The show's finale aimed to clinch the argument that blacks' evolution to full citizenship was real. An all-black detachment from the U.S. 9th Cavalry executed precise drills to an all-black marching band. This was the age of Darwin, so the show presented the musical race rising to such orderliness from the primitive Congolese jungle to the cotton field, showcasing the phenomenal melody of his voice. Prior to curtain time, 25-cent ticket holders wandered the grounds, also the performers' living quarters. They could see an acre of real cotton and watch it ginned and pressed into bales. They peeked in on supposedly natural scenes of black people at leisure, playing cards according. These are not actors, declared one newspaper notice.
Before opening day, the cast paraded down Fifth Avenue. Most went on foot, but Cordelia McLean was a prima donna, processed by open carriage. Twice a day during the run, she appeared in formal dress singing My Old Kentucky Home in European concert style, backed by a monster chorus of harmonizing quartets. The song was presented as refined, like Madame Cordelia herself. Just a handful of black women had appeared on American stages, and Foster's melody, an ornament in the parlors of so many white homes, was a means to illustrate a black woman's respectability. Cordelia sang the song straight, but how she handled the lyrics is not known. Did Madame McLean stick to the first verse with his vaguely interrupted plantation myth, "'Tis summer, the darkies are gay,' followed by hard times, or did Cordelia McLean sing it through with its indictment of the slave trade? Did she cry? The dignified mood did not last. In the next number, Watermelon Smiling on the Vine, a burrow led by an aged uncle rolled up with a cartload of melons. A mad scramble ensued with dozens of performers cracking open and uninhibitedly devouring the bright red fruit. Ricocheting from racist burlesque to liberation, Black America concluded by dropping 20-foot-high banners of Abraham Lincoln, Harriet Beecher Stowe, and Frederick Douglass from above. McLean insisted on including the leading lion of his race, who had died early that year. Black Americans were on American soil to stay. White producers got to see colored talent by the hundreds, and many participants' show business careers leaped forward as a result. Still, they were forced to live in slave cabins on a reconstructed plantation, pick fake cotton, and remain in character as ticket holders wandered through their quarters. The McLeans were native northerners, professionals like many of their fellow cast members in black America, though Salisbury's promotional materials pretended that all these Negroes came from the South and were not show people, but genuine. In exchange for the hope of progress, the performers validated plantation fantasies that whitewashed black Americans' historical nightmare. White America has demanded similar compromises ever since. The cumulative effect could be souring. Black America drew good crowds, but supporting what amounted to an entire town proved too costly, and the planned European tour never materialized. McLean grew bitter as white producers and venue owners siphoned profits off black backs. In a dispatch from California where an 1899 revival of the South before the war was doing good business, he reported that my old Kentucky home never failed to make the most stupid person exert themselves by way of applause. It is as authentic an opinion as McLean ever committed to paper. During a time that spanned the early hopefulness of Reconstruction to a period historians characterize as the nadir of American race relations, perhaps 200,000 people saw black America. Over that same span of time, whole professions and institutions closed to black people. Lynching reached gruesome heights. While Billy and Cordelia found a measure of success in the 1890s, white mobs killed 1,300 black people with impunity and hundreds, perhaps thousands more, were executed after rush trials with all white juries and no constitutional protections. By the end of the century, the McLeans were decamped for Australia. They lived and performed overseas for much of the next two decades. McLean wrote to Indianapolis black newspaper The Freeman 
that he would return from self-imposed exile in France only when his people could somehow stand up to the theatrical establishment that humiliated and shut them out. With white-owned theaters refusing to book black-produced shows, it was impossible to sing their own songs and tell their own stories. The Negro must wake up and march on, he urged. Just how one did this in the face of violence-based systemic racism was unclear. The first generation of professional black musicians and actors who rose through Negro minstrelsy and Billy McLean's cavalcades regularly performed My Old Kentucky Home. Some joined segregated guilds like the Musicians Union and made it into the middle class. Top stars, McLean and his trunks full of fashionable outfits or Sam Lucas with his diamonds, flaunted their wealth, proving success was possible, but only by perpetuating to some degree disparaging racial caricatures. Cordelia McLean's operatic presentation of My Old Kentucky Home tried to wrap the minstrel classic in dignified black femininity, but overall sung by genuine black performers, the message remained one of Old South nostalgia. Black artists were told to be grateful for work where they could get it. All the same, they were committed to delivering transcendent music and dancing. With only a sliver of black Americans permitted to work outside sharecropping, domestic service, and the lowest paid manual labor, the price of the menstrual mask was worth paying for a shot at fame and the opportunity to practice one's art. That is the end of the article. But there are several photographs and images that accompany this reading of the story. History of my old Kentucky home examines how black performers had to act out caricatures of plantation life. The first is a black and white close up photograph of a man. The caption reads, Billy McLean spread his talents across minstrel comedy, acting, dancing, boxing, songwriting, and playwriting. The next image are two side-by-side promotional photos from the traveling show Black America. On the left side is a line of women dressed in leopard skin and holding spears, appearing like Amazon warriors. On the right are four uniformed men on horseback one carrying an American flag. And the caption reads, July 29th, 1895 edition of Illustrated American. My old Kentucky home was sung in operatic fashion in black America, an 1895 traveling show involving hundreds of performers who danced, executed military formations, and picked and pressed cotton. The next image are a couple of side-by-side black and white photos On the left, you see a line of nine black men singing. And on the right is a picture of a cotton mill. The caption reads, July 29th, 1895 edition of Illustrated American. The show might have introduced the laughing song, which the first black recording artist, George W. Johnson, made into a record three years later. The next image is a black and white photo of the whole cast of the show Black America standing out in an amphitheater and behind them is a large picture of the Kansas abolitionist John Brown. The caption reads, 
July 29, 1895 edition of Illustrated American. Abolitionist heroes marked the finale of the 1895 extravaganza of Black America. John Brown is pictured above. That was a reading of the book review of My Old Kentucky Home, The Astonishing Life and Reckoning of an Iconic American Song by Emily Bingham. It appeared at the website Anscape.com, and the title of the actual article is History of My Old Kentucky Home Examines How Black Performers Had to Act Out Caricatures of Plantation Life. It was originally published May 3rd, 2022, and was written by Emily Bingham. Next on the African American Hour is an obituary from the New York Times and its nytimes.com website. The title is, Johnny A. Jones Sr. Dies at 102, a civil rights lawyer early on. It was written by Catherine Q. Seeley, capital S-E-E-L-Y-E, and was originally published May 6, 2022. Two weeks after Johnny A. Jones Sr. graduated from law school in 1953, he was thrust into a case that would set a template for the civil rights movement and for his own legal career. He was recruited to help represent people who had been arrested during a bus boycott in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Lasting eight days, it was the first large-scale bus boycott of the civil rights era, and it served as a model for other nonviolent resistance protests, especially the more famous year-long bus boycott that began in December 1955 in Montgomery, Alabama, spurred by the arrest of Rosa Parks. The Montgomery organizers, led by a charismatic young preacher named the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., consulted with Mr. Jones and others on tactics and strategy. The Baton Rouge boycott also marked the beginning of Mr. Jones's 57-year career as a persistent challenger to the race-based codes of the Jim Crow South. He was the first black member of the Baton Rouge Bar Association. Mr. Jones was 102 when he died on April 23rd. A goddaughter, Maida McDonald, told WAFB-TV in Baton Rouge that he had died in the Louisiana War Veterans Home in Jackson, Louisiana. In addition to his civil rights history, Mr. Jones had a brush with military history. During World War II, he was the first black warrant officer in the Army and he participated in Operation Overlord in which Allied forces landed more than 150,000 troops on Normandy beaches in 1944 as part of the largest amphibious assault in the history of warfare. As for his career as a litigator, Mr. Jones became involved in numerous civil rights cases, often working with the NAACP and the Congress of Racial Equality. He sought to remove racial identification from election ballots and fought to integrate Baton Rouge's schools, parks, and pools, all the while facing threats of arrest and disbarment. Bombs were twice planted under his car. After the United States Supreme Court outlawed segregation in public schools in the landmark 1954 decision Brown v. Board of Education, Mr. Jones still had to accompany black children to school for their own protection, he said. He also defended several students from Southern University, the historically black institution in Baton Rouge, after they staged nonviolent lunch counter sit-ins in the city 
but were arrested anyway and charged with disturbing the peace. By the time the sit-in case reached the Supreme Court in 1961, they were being argued successfully by Thurgood Marshall, then a prominent civil rights lawyer who later became the first black justice of the Supreme Court. Johnny Anderson Jones was born on November 3, 1919, in Laurel Hill, a tiny town in northern Louisiana, and raised on a plantation where his parents, Henry Edward and Sarah Ann Coates Jones, were farmers on 75 acres of rented land. After he enrolled at Southern University, Mr. Jones was drafted into the Army in 1942 and assigned to a unit responsible for unloading equipment and supplies on Omaha Beach during the D-Day invasion. He was almost killed twice, the first time when a mine exploded below his ship, blowing him onto an upper deck. Then, as he waded ashore as part of the Allied assault, he came under fire from a German sniper. Before the war was over, he had fought in the Battle of the Bulge. While most of the soldiers on D-Day were white, Roughly 2,000 of them were black service members. By the end of the war, more than a million African Americans were in uniform, including the famed Tuskegee Airmen. But the military was still segregated by race, and these soldiers encountered discrimination both in the service and when they came home. When he was honorably discharged from the Army, Mr. Jones was described as white, he recalled in an oral history in 1993. He said the clerks filling out his papers had assumed he was white because they didn't think a black person could have performed the task that he was listed as having performed. Right now I'm white as far as my discharge paper because I didn't go back to have it corrected, he said, laughing at the recollection. Back in Louisiana, by his account, he was driving to a medical appointment in New Orleans one day to have wartime shrapnel removed from his neck when he was pulled over and beaten by a white police officer. He knocked me down and started kicking me, Mr. Jones told the Department of Veterans Affairs in a 2021 interview. The incident helped compel him to become a lawyer, he said. Things weren't right, he said. Separate but equal was unconstitutional, and I wanted to fight it and make it better. Mr. Jones resumed his college studies at Southern and earned his bachelor's degree in psychology in 1949. He worked for the Postal Service as a letter carrier, then earned his law degree from Southern University School of Law, now Southern University Law Center. He was asked to head the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice by Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy, he said, but the appointment never materialized in the wake of President John F. Kennedy's assassination shortly thereafter. Mr. Jones continued to practice law into his 90s. His marriage to Sabelle Chase ended in divorce. His four children and his seven siblings all died before he did. He is survived by numerous grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Only last year, 77 years after being wounded during the war, Mr. Jones was belatedly awarded the Purple Heart at the old state capitol in Baton Rouge. I wanted to express our deepest respect for your distinguished service and long overdue recognition of your wounds received during the invasion of Omaha Beach on D-Day. General James C. McConnell, the Army Chief of Staff, wrote in a letter to Mr. Jones accompanying the award. We owe you a debt of gratitude, he added, both for your sacrifices during World War II and for being a role model for African-Americans aspiring to serve. There are several photographs that go along with the story. First, we have a color photograph of Mr. Johnny Jones Sr. standing in his home 
with a wall of plaques, awards, and pictures behind him, and he's cradling a folded American flag in his hands. The caption reads, Johnny A. Jones Sr. at his home in Baton Rouge, Louisiana in 2019. After participating in the Normandy invasion in 1944, he came home to be beaten in the Jim Crow South, an experience that compelled him to become a civil rights lawyer. The next photograph is a black and white picture. In the foreground is a white police officer. Across the street in the background is a large group of black people. The caption reads, Boycotters of the Baton Rouge bus system gathered to share automobile rides in 1953. The bus boycott would become a model for the more famous one in Montgomery, Alabama, two and a half years later. The final photograph shows five people grouped together, posing for a picture inside a city bus. The caption reads, Mr. Jones seated at left in 2018 when he reunited with civil rights activists and other residents of Baton Rouge, Louisiana on a 1953 era bus. That was a reading of the article, Johnny A. Jones Sr. Dies at 102, a civil rights lawyer early on. It appeared at the nytimes.com website and was written by Catherine Q. Celie and was originally published May 6, 2022. The next reading on today's African American Hour comes from the Wall Street Journal, and it's May 18, 2022 edition. The title of the article is, Why Some Minority Employees Prefer to Stay Out of the Office. It was written by Alex Janine. When Bailey Boyd Pitts put her hair up in a bun to go into the office, she didn't think much of it until a worker called attention to it. A colleague passing by said that Miss Boyd Pitt's hair looked more elegant in a bun than the way she usually wore it in Afro, Miss Boyd Pitt says. She found the comment about her appearance, however well intended, to be insensitive. It made her wonder whether it was a comment on how her hair looked the rest of the time. And she realized the encounter wouldn't have happened at her previous job where employees could not only work remotely, they could keep their computer cameras off during meetings. At that moment, I was really stunned, she says. If I was working from home, I wouldn't have to deal with this. I wouldn't have to worry about how others perceive me because of my appearance. As companies increasingly encourage workers to return to the office, many minority employees are reluctant. A September 2021 survey from the Society of Human Resource Management, for example, found that approximately half of black workers said they preferred to do their job outside the workplace compared with 39% of white workers and 29% of Hispanic workers. The survey didn't ask respondents the reasons for their preferences in wanting to work from home, but some minority employees, career coaches, and workplace experts say that many of them don't want to face what are often referred to as microaggressions, everyday comments or actions that are interpreted as disparaging or communicating negative ideas about a person's identity, such as their race, disability, gender identity, or religion. Some comments are often unintentional and can arise remotely or during in-person office encounters, these people say. As long as there's an option to stay home, Folks who are underrepresented are going to stay home because it minimizes their exposure to subtle acts of exclusion, said Tiffany Jana, founder of diversity consultancy firm 
TMI Consulting. The next section of the article is titled, A Safe Place. Workplace slights have gotten more attention in recent years as employees speak up about them, and workplace trainers and diversity consultants push to address the snubs in sensitivity training. For some employees, working from home is a way to reduce the sting. That was the case for Jennifer Wameling, W-A-M-E-L-I-N-G, who recently started a new job in staffing in Rochester, New York. At her former employer, the offensive comments went from a regular occurrence to an occasional slip-up when her organization transitioned from in-person to remote work, she says. Ms. Wameling, who is transgender, says some colleagues have referred to her by her dead name, the one she was given at birth, and by the wrong pronouns. At the company's first large in-person gathering since March 2020 last summer, she says, she was called twice by the wrong pronouns. When Ms. Wameling experiences these things while working from home, she says, they are easier to process without having to take on the immediate burden of correcting the person who made the comment. But the gut punch feeling only gets sort of exacerbated by almost a fight or flight response, she says. It's like, oh my God, I've got to do something in this moment because it's on my shoulders to correct this person. The next section of this article is titled Out of Sight. But members of minority groups who work from home to avoid enduring slights may be hurting their careers, workplace experts say. Remote workers face the chance of being forgotten by distant bosses. A 2021 survey from the Society for Human Resource Management found 42% of supervisors say they sometimes forget about remote workers when assigning tasks. More than a third of these surveys said working remotely on a permanent basis would reduce the number of career opportunities available to such employees. The possibility of being forgotten may hit minority workers particularly hard. Many of them already say they feel less supported and that they get fewer opportunities for advancement. Lacking behind white workers and high-level jobs, say some workplace employees, career coaches, and workplace experts. Dr. Jaina of TMI Consulting worries about the negative consequences of the choice to remain remote. The biggest danger is the in-person workforce is going to be higher ranking and demographically homogenous. Johnny C. Taylor, president and chief executive of the Society for Human Resource Management, predicts that those who choose to work remotely may get passed over for promotions because of a lack of visibility and FaceTime. If you are staying out of the workplace and working remotely purely to prevent any exposure to microaggressions, you are making a serious trade-off from a career progression standpoint, he says. Carol Glazer, president of the National Organization on Disability, a nonprofit that focuses on increasing work opportunities for disabled people, hopes these workers don't become out of sight, out of mind. People with disabilities have been left out of civic life for so long, she says. If we don't see them in our schools, in our communities, in our workplace, it only reinforces a lack of understanding and the implicit bias that leads to microaggressions. As company leaders invite employees back to their offices, They should keep an eye out for these potential demographic divisions and prepare to lose workers who feel uncomfortable coming in, say some workplace consultants. You can have the most diverse leadership base that you've ever had, and you can find them now because you can recruit from anywhere if you're willing to let them work remotely, says Dr. Jaina. But you have to be willing to take that risk. One company that is spotlighting the issue of slights is Paycor, 
a human resources software company with roughly 2,000 employees. The Cincinnati-based company hosts a diversity webinar series for its employees that teaches attendees, among other things, to combat microaggressions and other exclusive behaviors. The company won the 2022 Top Workplaces Award for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Practices from Intergage, an employee research and survey organization. During virtual meetings, some senior leaders have adopted an accountability buddy, another member of the meeting who can privately point out if their buddy inadvertently used offensive or exclusive language at the meeting, says Paras Parker, the company's chief human resources officer. It was a nice, immediate, safe way for us to hold each other accountable and help us understand when it was that we were using it so we could be more intentional about not using it, says Mrs. Parker. She doesn't expect Paycor to eliminate all workplace slights, but hopes that the company has created a culture where employees feel comfortable speaking up about the ones they witness or experience. The next section of this article is titled Addressing Snubs. But evidence suggests Paycor is an outlier by including workplace snubs in its training. Industry groups say companies of all sizes are focused now more than ever on how to retain employees, but such slights may not be on their radar. The Computing Technology Industry Association, an IT trade organization with roughly 2,000 corporate members, recently surveyed U.S. employers across a range of industries and found that roughly two-thirds don't think unconscious bias and slights in the workplace pose a challenge to staff retention. Larger corporations with established diversity, equity, and inclusion teams and training programs are more likely to treat workplace slights as a problem, says Yvette Steele, Senior Director for Member Engagement at the Technology Association. She has seen some larger companies hire external facilitators or use employee resource groups to initiate conversations around workplace slights. Small and medium-sized businesses, in contrast, often don't have the financial resources to prioritize the issue, Ms. Steele says. Smaller companies are focused on growth, revenue, and just keeping the lights on, she says. Mark A. Taylor, chief executive of the Society for Information Management, a technology industry group, says few business leaders are focusing specifically on snubs in the workplace, but many are concerned more broadly about what to do for employees who don't want to come back to the office. They're talking about a heightened level of emotional intelligence and empathy required because everyone will feel differently about coming back, he says. Meanwhile, some companies might find sensitivity training to be too abstract or expensive, says retention and management expert John Sullivan, professor emeritus at San Francisco State University. Data-driven solutions and financial incentives that involve rewards and punishments could drive more widespread change, he says. For example, a company could offer a tip line for employees to anonymously report microaggressions, conduct post-exit interviews with employees who leave the company, or survey employees about their satisfaction with the workplace climate on a team-by-team basis. If everyone on the team doesn't get a bonus if the climate survey doesn't come back positive, they will pay attention, says Dr. Sullivan. Meanwhile, Dr. Sullivan says, companies may shy away from programs that train workers to advocate for themselves, fearing the efforts will encourage unionization. Managers could be wary of supporting internal programs that look like the beginnings of a union. 
Other workplace experts believe that employees should handle such comments by speaking up and educating their colleagues about them and should rejoin the ranks of in-person office holders to ensure representation and visibility. Mr. Taylor of the Society for Human Resource Management, a black man, believes employees have to develop coping mechanisms around microaggressions. We want to make fewer of them occur, but they are going to exist, he says. Both sides have work to do. There is one sidebar that goes along with this article. It reads, 38% of surveyed black women said they've had their judgment questioned at work compared to 31% of all women and 24% of all men. 50% of black workers said they prefer to work remotely compared with 39% of white workers. 42% of supervisors said they sometimes forgot about remote workers when assigning tasks. Nine in ten disabled workers in the United Kingdom who worked from home during the pandemic said they would like to continue doing so at least some of the time. That was a reading of the article, Why Some Minority Employees Prefer to Stay Out of the Office. It's from the May 18th edition of the Wall Street Journal and was written by Alex Janine. Next up on today's African American Hour is a story from the Associated Press and its AP.com website. The title is Black Lives Matter Has $42 Million in Assets. It was written by Aaron Morrison and was published May 17, 2022. The foundation started by organizers of the Black Lives Matter movement is still worth tens of millions of dollars after spending more than $37 million on grants, real estate, consultants, and other expenses according to tax documents filed with the IRS. In a new 63-page Form 990 shared exclusively with the Associated Press, the Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation Incorporated reports that it invested $32 million in stocks from the $90 million it received as donations amid racial justice protests in 2020. That investment is expected to become an endowment to ensure the foundation's work continues in the future, organizers say. It ended its last fiscal year from July 1, 2020 to June 30, 2021, with nearly $42 million in net assets. The foundation had an operating budget of about $4 million, according to a board member. The tax filing shows that nearly $6 million was spent on a Los Angeles-area compound. The Studio City property, which includes a home with six bedrooms and bathrooms, a swimming pool, a soundstage and office space, was intended as a campus for a Black Arts Fellowship and is currently used for that purpose, the board member said. This is the BLM Foundation's first public accounting of its finances since incorporating in 2017. As a fledgling nonprofit, it had been under the fiscal sponsorship of a well-established charity and wasn't required to publicly disclose its financials until it became an independent 501c3 nonprofit in December 2020. The tax filing suggests the organization is still finding its footing, it currently has no executive director or in-house staff. Nonprofit experts tell the Associated Press that the BLM Foundation seems to be operating like a scrappy organization with far fewer resources, although some say black-led charities face unfair scrutiny in an overwhelmingly white and wealthy philanthropic landscape. 
Still, its governance structure makes it difficult to disprove allegations of impropriety, financial mismanagement, and deviation from mission that have dogged the Black Lives Matter Foundation for years, one expert said. It comes across as an early startup nonprofit without substantial governance structure in place that got a huge windfall, said Brian Mittendorf, a professor of accounting at Ohio State University who focuses on nonprofit organizations and their financial statements. People are going to be quick to assume that mismatch reflects intent, he added. Whether that's anything improper here, that is another question. But whether they set themselves up for being criticized, I think that certainly is the case because they didn't plug a bunch of those gaps. The Black Lives Matter movement first emerged in 2013 after the acquittal of George Zimmerman, the neighborhood watch volunteer who killed 17-year-old Trayvon Martin in Florida. But it was the 2014 death of Michael Brown at the hands of police in Ferguson, Missouri, that made the slogan, Black Lives Matter, a rallying cry for progressives and a favorite target of derision from conservatives. Black Lives Matter co-founders Patrice Cullors, Alicia Garza, and Ayo Tamidi, capital A-Y-O, capital T-O-M-E-T-I, had pledged to build a decentralized organization governed by the consensus of Black Lives Matter chapters. But just three years into existence, Colors was the only movement founder involved in the organization. And in 2020, a tidal wave of contributions in the aftermath of protests over George Floyd's murder by Minneapolis police meant the Black Lives Matter organization needed much more infrastructure. When Colors revealed the windfall of donations last year, local chapter organizers and families of police brutality victims reacted angrily. Until then, the foundation had not been transparent with the most devoted Black Lives Matter organizers, many of whom accused Colors of shutting them out of decisions about how financial resources would be allocated. Yane Ndego, capital Y-A-H-N-E, capital N-D-G-O, an activist and former organizer with the Black Lives Matter chapter in Philadelphia said Colors reneged on a promise to hand over control of the foundation's resources to grassroots organizers. When resources came in, when opportunities came in, the foundation alone would be the ones to decide who was going to take advantage of them without having to take any consideration of the other organizers whose work was giving them the access to those resources and opportunities in the first place, said Ndego, who organized a group of chapters that confronted the foundation over issues of transparency and accountability. In 2020, the foundation did spin off its network of chapters as a sister collective called Black Lives Matter Grassroots. It has a fiscal sponsor managing money granted by the foundation. Melina Abdullah, co-founder of Black Lives Matter's first chapter in Los Angeles, also directs the Grassroots Collective and said its organizers continue to have direct impact in communities across the country. We'll never stop doing that, Abdullah said. That's the work we were born out of. In a recent interview with the Associated Press, Colors acknowledged the foundation was ill-prepared to handle the moment. The tax filing lists Colors as an uncompensated founder and executive director. She resigned last year. The foundation also paid nearly $140,000 in severance to a former managing director who had been at odds with local Black Lives Matter chapter organizers prior to Colors' tenure as director. The filing shows Colors reimbursed the organization $73,000 
for a charter flight for foundation-related travel, which the organization says she took in 2021 out of concern for COVID-19 and security threats. She also paid the foundation $390 over her uses of the Studio City property for two private events. During the last fiscal year, Colors was the foundation board's sole voting director and held no board meetings according to the filing. Although that is permissible under Delaware law where the foundation is incorporated, that governance structure gives the appearance that Colors alone decided who to hire and how to spend donations. That was never the truth current board members said. For all the questions raised about its oversight, the Black Lives Matter Foundation's tax filing shows its stewards haven't squandered donations. Instead, it granted tens of millions of dollars to Black Lives Matter's chapters, Black-led organizations, and families of police brutality victims whose names rallied the larger movement. This 990 reveals that the BLM Foundation is the largest Black abolitionist nonprofit organization that has ever existed in the nation's history. What we're doing has never been done before, says Shalamaya Bowers, who serves as the foundation's board secretary. We needed to get dollars out to grassroots organizations doing the work of abolition, doing the work that would shift the moral tide of this world towards one that does not have or believe in police, prisons, jails, or violence, he said. Earlier this month, the foundation announced Bowers as one of three members of its board of directors. He serves with board chair Cicely Gay, a communications professional with more than 20 years of experience in nonprofit and philanthropic organizations, and Dezane Parker, a member of Black Lives Matter's Los Angeles chapter whose work focuses on the impact of mass incarceration on families. We are decolonizing philanthropy, Gay said. We as a board are charged with disrupting traditional standards of what grant making in philanthropy looks like. It means investing in black communities, trusting them with their dollars. The foundation will launch a transparency and accountability center on its website to make its financial documents available for public inspection, Bowers said. Foundation relies on consultants. To get here, the foundation has relied on a small grouping of consultants, some of whom have close ties to founders and other Black Lives Matter organizers. For example, the tax filing shows the foundation paid nearly $970,000 to Trap Hills LLC, a company founded by Damon Turner, who fathered a child with colors. The company was hired to produce live events and provide other creative services, Bauer said. The foundation paid more than $840,000 to Colors Protection LLC, a security firm run by Paul Colors, Patrice's brother, according to the tax filing. Because the Black Lives Matter movement is known for vehemently protesting law enforcement organizations, the foundation felt this protection could not be entrusted to former police professionals who typically run security firms, said Bowers, adding the foundation sought bids for other security contractors. Bowers, who has previously served as deputy executive director, is founder and president of a firm that received a lion's share of money spent on consultants in the last fiscal year. Bowers Consulting provided much of the foundation's operational support, including staffing, fundraising, and other key services, and was paid more than $2.1 million, according to the tax filing. The foundation's reliance on consultants is not unusual for newer nonprofits, said Mittendorf, the Ohio State accounting professor, 
but having clear policies around business transactions could reduce any appearance of impropriety, he said. It's a best practice not to engage in business transactions with people who have influence inside the organization or with companies affiliated with people who have influence inside the organization, Mittendorf said. Make sure you have conflict of interest policies and other controls in place so that those transactions are all being done to benefit the organization and not to benefit the individuals. The tax filing indicates the foundation has a conflict of interest policy, and Bauer said the last BLM board approved the contract with his firm when he was not a board member. Our firm stepped in when Black Lives Matter had no structure and no staff, he said. We filled the gap when nothing else existed. But let me be crystal clear, there was no conflict of interest. Controversy surrounding the organization's financing has elicited probes by at least two state attorneys general. Board members said they are cooperating with civil investigations in Indiana and Ohio, and they have turned over relevant documents to those authorities. Isabel Lighton, Interim Executive Director of the Donors of Color Network, an organization that promotes racial equity and philanthropy, said discrimination in the nonprofit sector leaves little room for black-led progressive movement organizations to publicly make mistakes. Such organizations are typically receiving much less financial and operational support than wealthy white-led nonprofits, but receive much more criticism, she said. It's tapping into a deep narrative that people of color do not deserve to have the same resources that those who have already made it get, Layton said. It's intended for people to start to doubt and create their own new echo chamber of criticizing who deserves to receive resources. Black Lives Matter grants $26 million to chapters and families. The foundation's tax filing rebuts claims that the Black Lives Matter Foundation ignored the larger movement. Nearly $26 million, or 70% of its expenses, were grants to organizations and families in the last fiscal year. Twelve BLM chapters, including those in Boulder, Colorado, Boston, Washington, D.C., Detroit, Los Angeles, Gary, Indiana, and Philadelphia, received pledges for grants of up to $500,000. The family foundations, created in honor of Floyd and others killed by police and vigilantes Trayvon Martin and Oscar Grant, each received contributions of $200,000. Jakari Harris, executive director of the George Floyd Memorial Foundation, said in a statement that the organization was incredibly grateful for the grant, the largest one-time contribution we have received to date within the U.S. Harris said the funds will help provide college scholarships, mental health support to the black community, and educate about the dangers of police brutality around the world. The Michael O.D. Brown We Love Our Sons and Daughters Foundation, run by Michael Brown Jr.'s mother, Leslie McSpadden, was approved for a larger multi-year grant of $1.4 million. A representative of the Brown Foundation told the Associated Press that an initial $500,000 had been received in 2021. McSpadden is happy to have the BLM Foundation support, the representative said. Among its larger grants are $2.3 million to the Living Through Giving Foundation, a nonprofit charity platform that encourages giving at the local level, and $1.5 million to Team Blackbird, LLC, a rapid response communications and movement strategy project that increases the visibility of movement organizations. 
The tax filing does not reveal the foundation's largest donors. Transparency and accountability is so important to us, but so is trust, said Gay, the BLM Foundation chair. Presenting donor names after the fact at this point would be like a betrayal of that trust. There are two images that accompany this story. The first is a picture of three people standing in front of a mural of former Representative John Lewis. The caption reads, Desane Parker, Cicely Gay, and Shalomaya Bowers pose for a portrait on Friday, May 13th in Atlanta. And the next image that comes with the story is a copy of the first page of the IRS tax form 990. That was a reading of the article, Black Lives Matter has $42 million in assets. It was written by Aaron Morrison and appeared at the AP.com website on May 17, 2022. We're going to wrap up today's program with a reading from Reuters.com. The title is, U.S. Cities Are Backing Off Banning Facial Recognition as Crime Rises. It was written by Paresh Dave and was originally published May 12, 2022. Facial recognition is making a comeback in the United States as bans to thwart the technology and curb racial bias in policing come under threat amid a surge in crime and increased lobbying from developers. Virginia, in July, will eliminate its prohibition on local police use of facial recognition a year after approving it, and California and the city of New Orleans as soon as this month could be next to hit the undo button. Homicide reports in New Orleans rose 67 percent over the last two years compared with the pair before, and police say they need every possible tool. Technology is needed to solve these crimes and to hold individuals accountable, police superintendent Sean Ferguson told reporters as he called on the city council to repeal a ban that went into effect last year. Efforts to get bans in place are meeting resistance in jurisdictions big and small from New York and Colorado to West Lafayette, Indiana, even Vermont, the last state left with a near 100 percent ban against police facial recognition use, chipped away at its law last year to allow for investigating child sex crimes. From 2019 through 2021, about two dozen U.S. state or local governments passed laws restricting facial recognition. Studies had found the technology less effective in identifying black people and the anti-police Black Lives Matter protests gave the arguments momentum. But ongoing research by the federal government's National Institute of Standards and Technology, NIST, has shown significant industry-wide progress in accuracy. And Department of Homeland Security testing published last month found little variation in accuracy across skin tone and gender. There is growing interest in police approaches that address concerns about the technology while ensuring it is used in a bounded, accurate, and non-discriminatory way that benefits communities, said Jake Parker, Senior Director of Government Relations at the lobbying group Security Industry Association. Shifting sentiment could bring its members, including Clearview AI, Idemia, and Motorola Solutions, a greater share of the $124 billion 
that state and local governments spend on policing annually. The portion dedicated to technology is not closely tracked. Gaining new police business is ever more important for Clearview, which this week settled a privacy lawsuit over images it collected from social media by agreeing not to sell its flagship system to the United States private sector. Clearview, which helps police find matches in the social media data, said it welcomes any regulation that helps society get the most benefit from facial recognition technology while limiting potential downsides. Idemia and Motorola, which provide matches from government databases, declined to comment. Though the recent studies have eased lawmakers' reservations, debate is ongoing. The General Services Administration, which oversees federal contractors, said in a report released last month that major facial recognition tools disproportionately failed to match African Americans in its tests. The agency did not respond to requests to provide details about the testing. Facial recognition will be reviewed by the president's new National AI Advisory Committee, which last week began forming a subgroup tasked with studying its use in policing. That was a reading of the story. U.S. cities are backing off banning facial recognition as crime rises. It was written by Paresh Dave and appeared at the Reuters.com website on May 12, 2022. That's all the time we have for the African American Hour. My name is Byron Buckner. Rose will be here next week. Thanks for joining me.